Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Today, we are tackling a heavy subject, but I assure you, my guest today has taken it on in the most professional and nuanced way possible, and that kind of view is sorely needed. We are talking about a new book called The Cactus Hunters, Desire and Extinction in the Illicit Succulent Trade that is authored by Dr. Jared Margulis. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while now, you might have remembered Dr. Margulis from our conversation about the illicit Dudleya trade. But in this book, he expands into the illicit plant trade so much more and tells stories from all perspectives. Of course, all of this is rooted in trying to make better recommendations for plant conservation efforts so that poaching doesn't drive these species to the brink or beyond. It's a fascinating and great read. And of course, you'll find links to pick up a copy for yourself in the show notes for this episode. But before we get to that, I just want to say, if you're enjoying this podcast, consider supporting it. There are a lot of great ways to do that, and one of the best is by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. For a little bit of financial support each month, you can get a lot of fun kickbacks and, most importantly, ensure the show has a future. But that is entirely enough out of me. Let's get into this topic. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jared Margulis. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Jared Margules, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while. Uh, we're meeting under better circumstances globally at this point in time. But uh, for those that didn't hear the 2020 episode where we talked, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. So I'm Jared Margulis. I am an assistant professor in the Geography and Environment Department at the University of Alabama. Um, and for uh, the last five, six, seven years now or so, I've been studying uh, illegal trade in plants and ornamental plants specifically. And um, in particular today, I think we're going to be talking a lot about that trade in cactus and succulent plants. Yeah. And how did you stumble into this line of work? I mean, it's something that you see talked about somewhat in plant circles, at least. But where do you go from like an academic research perspective to really start diving into this subject matter? Yeah. And I'm sure we probably talked about this uh, when we talked back in 2020, but um, my work in this field started when I was a postdoc in the UK and was working within a broader research group called Biosec, which was interested in the intersections of security issues in conservation and biodiversity conservation. Mm. And I was originally supposed to study the illegal trade in tiger bones. My PhD work was in India, and so it made sense to continue to do work on conservation issues relevant to, to India. Um, there were a variety of reasons that I was um, kind of looking to maybe pivot towards something else. And I stumbled across an article about saguaro poaching or rustling, mm. which, you know, a lot of people might might be, if you think of illegal cactus trade, that might be one that people are at least familiar with, especially in the Southwest. Sure. Um, all of those saguaros in people's suburban uh, front yards in Phoenix had to come from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I was just intrigued. I was really fascinated. And um, there had been a little bit, like you said, written about illegal cactus and succulent trade. We can get into why that even is a thing. Why is it illegal? Um, but I couldn't find any really rigorous social research. So mm. research by social scientists, trying to understand the social dimensions of of why would such a trade exist? What was driving it? What might be a way of responding to it that was both effective, but also, um, you know, oriented towards, you know, ethics and justice. Um, so, yeah, um, I just became really fascinated and found a really welcoming community of people interested in, cact in cactus and succulent conservation. Um, and it created a really unique space for me to really dig in deep and spend a number of years doing this work. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you have put in, like I said, the legwork on it. And what's great is you have the academic publishing record to show all of the due diligence and, and investigation. I mean, truly investigative journalism on top of it all. But it's now culminated. The reason we're here today talking in a book, a wonderful book that I think everyone listening needs to pick up a copy of called The Cactus Hunters. And that's a heavy topic to try to take on <laughs> uh, beyond what you're already doing academically, was it not? Yeah, you know, I mean, I would say I, I consider the book an academic book, 
but I mean, it's published, so it's published with the University of Minnesota Press, which is an academic press, but we, I definitely tried to write it in a way that I think it is accessible mm. to a lot of different kinds of people, and hopefully readers will find that to be the case. Um, so if you really care, the footnotes are there, the references <laughs> are in the back, but we did make choices, right? So like those citations are in the footnotes rather than on the page. Right. Um, and again, that's to try to make sure that it's still you know, as readable and accessible to a wide audience as possible. Um, so it is certainly the work of a number of years of of pretty intense social research uh, within cactus and succulent collector communities based on interviews with, you know, law enforcement agents and botanists and conservationists, but also people who illegally trade in cactus and succulent plants and sometimes their seeds and um yeah it was definitely a labor of love <laughs> it took a lot of time and um but yeah i'm excited for it to finally to be out to be coming out in the world it's a it's been a bit a bit of a journey especially as my first book yeah yeah and i i want to commend you you i think you've achieved that sweet spot right of it is rigorous it's academic in that it's well researched and you're not going to stumble across things that are like wait did someone fact check that so kudos to that but it's also it's very digestible it's very approachable and i do think a very wide audience can pick it up and, and glean something from it a lot really um but you know when you're thinking about how to approach this you know from the hardcore science research publication world and then trying to expand the story so when we talked last time it was a heavy focus on dudley Farinosa. Yeah, you mentioned ca you know cactus hunters is in the name, but succulents it's that world blows up so quickly. So how did you, in approaching trying to write this book, really try to put your finger on the pulse of how many different ways this could go? That's a re that's a really interesting question. You know, the I have to put out there into the universe the title. My suggested title for the book was the succulent subject. <laughs> I love uh, maybe it was maybe it was too racy. Um, <laughs> it's another project for another time. You know, so we had to go, but they were like, you know, we understand it's not just about cacti, but we like the cactus hunters, and I and I think the title ultimately is good. Yeah. So that the full title for for listeners is the cactus hunters' desire and extinction in the illicit succulent trade. So the succulents are in there too. Right. Right. Um, a, a really big, you know, a challenge was deciding, especially in framing the chapters. You know, what species, what taxa to include, what not to include, and and like you mentioned, right, there is a difference in writing academic journal articles versus a book and that this is also a story right it is storytelling yeah. um and you need a you, you know part of what uh, you know I, part of what ideally makes good reading is a good story yes and you know <laughs> um you know uh thinking about how to frame that and so i was trying to pick particular species that i encountered in my research that i thought were really good vehicles mm. for bringing up particular kinds of phenomena so there are plenty of species i could have written about that i there was not space sure. to to write about um uh but so i was trying to pick species that i thought really did a nice job of bringing up to light certain kinds of dynamics i will say the book is also a product of its era in the sense that a lot of this writing did occur during covid so sure. there was some field work and more research in particular in mexico that i had planned to do that became impossible mm. to do and so there and also back in the in the u.s southwest unfortunately as well right. which features less dominantly in the book than i would have i had initially envisioned and planned and again that was simply you know due yeah. due to the era in which it was written um, well, A for effort, right? And I think it would, for me, be harder to try to trim a book like this down. So in a way, maybe the product of the times kind of <laughs> offered you up, you know, whatever's available, here you go. But regardless of that, when you start to think of all of the different ways you can tackle this, and, and when you think about families, let alone genera and species, I mean, the pressures are different, the motivations are different, the the cultivation is different. And this is something that took you truly across the globe in your research. And so when you start thinking about the specific examples, the species, did it ever get to a point where you're like, oh gosh, now I have to think of this country over here and this thread over here and this route goes this way. And why are these particular people the ones doing it when the people that end up with it aren't necessarily at all related in any way? Yes. <laughs> um, you know, one one thing that really emerged and is really a big problem right now. And I'm and I'm 
I'm, I'm, I'm both waiting on the results of a grant around it, but also doing mm. some writing around it now. I, I spent some time in South Africa this summer. I was really fortunate to get to wow. travel to South Africa and spend time um, with folks in the South African National Biodiversity Institute and visit some places where pretty, I hate to use the word crisis, um, but there is, if I, if I was going to use the word crisis in relationship to topic talking about cactus and succulent trade, right. um, what's happening right now in, in South Africa is, is pretty much it. Um, yeah. You have a lot of species that are probably extinct in the wild that, that became so in just a matter of months because of, of um, illegal harvesting wow. and illegal trade in demand from abroad. Um, and that doesn't feature, um, as much in the book in part because it was really starting to unfold as I was finishing up writing the book. Mm. Um, but there's a great example where, or, or another good example would be the sort of the cycad illegal cycad trade, right. um, is he, it is a really big problem and that's a, but it is also really different than some of the other trades that I looked at. And so, you know, there was a question of effort and money and time that, <laughs> that structured in part, like what yeah. to include and not to include. And you're right. The book could have just continued to go on and on and on. Um, I mean, I'm doing research now that is thinking about how to like how do I take the lessons I learned from writing this book and apply it to trying to really do proactive, pragmatic work to support conservation of species that continue to be impacted by these trades. So right. I am engaging actively with um, colleagues in South Africa about about what's happening there. Um, I'm also starting to do some work around carnivorous plant hmm. harvesting here in the US. Um, Excellent. If I learned another lesson from the pandemic, it's that your research shouldn't only be in other countries. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, um, hopefully there are lessons that come out of this book that can apply to other to other groups of species. Um, but yeah, uh, it was a, it was a real challenge and it definitely felt overwhelming at times. Um, I was not able to go everywhere. Right. right. Um, I could have I didn't go to Peru, for instance, sure. uh, or Chile, which has its own you know yeah. serious issues around cactus cactus poaching. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's fascinating just from a sort of biogeographic perspective, like which species, why? And, and what kind of elicits that. But the common thread through all of this, what wherever side people fall on, hopefully on uh, the ethical side as we're speaking and people listening here, is this truly is a story of passion, right? Like none of this would be possible without an extreme passion either for collection or for trying to understand plants or conservation, maybe sometimes misguided. But you yourself as a researcher, now you are a professional, but you wouldn't <laughs> jump into this without being passionate. And so... As you're trying to sort of peel away the layers to the story of these many stories and, and get to the bottom of what's going on, why it's going on, and, and like you said, these pragmatic solutions, I mean, to me, I start getting really fired up. I, I get fuming when I think of like species pushed to the brink just to become houseplants. Uh, talk about that a little bit in this process. Yeah, I mean, I think... I had never written a book before and I had no real plans to write a book either. I, you know, at least this is a, a nerdy side tangent, but within geography, at least you can have a pretty successful career without writing a book. Sure. And that's not true of other disciplines necessarily. Um, but I couldn't conceive of the project outside of the book format in part just because of how entangled it all is mm -hmm. and how international and cosmopolitan and kind of tentacular these subjects are how these plants are moving from like you know one continent to another and bringing all these different kind of diverse actors together and it was really hard for me to imagine sort of splicing that up into a bunch of journal articles and also because like you said the stories are compelling and in part they're compelling because people are obsessed and people are passionate and i became obsessed mm. that's I, I think mo I, I, I would imagine at least it's hard for me to, to gauge that, but I think it would become clear to most readers that I clearly became pretty obsessed myself, <laughs> both with the plants at the heart of this. You know, I was not coming into this topic uh, already a cactophile or a cactus obsessive, mm -hmm. um, but I definitely became very passionate about these plants, but also about the people who care for these plants. And I don't necessarily mean to say that care is always positive. Sure. Um, in terms of its impacts on the species. But, you know, there's a whole lot of desire moving around in these trades. Um, obviously, that's what sends people out into the world on sometimes, you know, to extraordinarily hard to reach places to find these plants. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it became necessary for my research methodology to sort of get caught up in the throes of those feelings as mm. well.
That's an interesting perspective. And I mean, at some point, did you feel like I got to step away for like a week? I mean, I know deadlines are deadlines, so like maybe not more than that. But, you know, was by the end of this, when you were wrapping it up, getting the final version out, was was there any part of you that felt like it it changed you? I I wouldn't doubt it, right? I mean, like you said, you became obsessed, but like, was it taxing or, or how did you really come out the other side of this with a more nuanced opinion or what? It definitely changed me. It, I mean, not only did it change my opinions about a lot of topics, which um, I think I left the project feeling very ambiguous about a lot of things that often seem black and white, I would right. say, especially in regards to trade and legality. Um, it changed my relationship with a lot of species. Um, you know, <laughs> I have... I have, I, I, I have, when I was doing this research, I was living in the UK and by the end of it, I probably had 30 or 40 cacti and succulents in my little apartment there, largely because people, you know, collectors who I would do interviews with would give them to me invariably sure. because they would always have so many. Of course, then because of CITES, which maybe we'll talk about, I, I ended up actually not being able to bring that collection back with me yeah. to the US. So I only have a few succulents in, in, at home right now, but I, I can't look at them and not think about all this time invested in these plants. It's a strange experience to invest yeah. so much of your life into something that just a couple of years before you really, you know, I didn't know any more about these species than the average person. Um, but I also think that they have taught me an enormous amount about thinking, thinking about what it means to um, try to develop thoughtful kind of ethical relationships with plants mm. as a person. Mm -hmm. um, how, what does it mean to cultivate responsibly um, and, and cultivate, positive relationships with these plants um both out in uh, both out with wild plants but also thinking about them in cultivation and how they got there and trying to uncover the histories of how those plants mm. end up in our in our you know on our windowsills or in our backyards yeah yeah i can imagine and i'm i'm even when it's 100% legal and ethically done sometimes those histories can kind of cloud the experience to an extent but it is part of that story and i'm really happy you mentioned the sort of previous thinking of it being sort of black and white, right? And mm -hmm. anyone that spends time in the botanical community will encounter someone that maybe is the heart's in the right place, but you might not agree with their approach. Or maybe the laws. Sometimes people, I've heard of many criticisms of CITES, both valid and aggressive. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it really, what I love about this book is none of it is black and white. None of it is vilifying. It is truly like, why is this happening? What's going on? And Sometimes it's really hard to walk away feeling like these people are, you know, what we imagine, these villains with like a bag and maybe a, a duster, you know, like just doing yeah. nefarious <laughs> stuff, right? right? So that to me was one of the most stark because, again, I get fired up. But at the same time, you got to realize like it's just as nuanced as people are nuanced. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm curious to see how readers appreciate it. It was really important to me to try to bring as much respect to the plants that are being impacted by these trades as the people that are engaged. And I don't mean that just as the, in terms of the people who potentially are, you know, labeled as poachers or, sure. or involved in illegal harvesting, but also, you know, respect for the conservationists and the botanists that I spent, you know, time with. I mean, I did over a hundred in-depth interviews for researching this book alongside wow. a lot of time in doing participatory observation, what we could think of as a, a kind of ethnography. Um, so, you know, countless, countless people gave me so much of their time and generously offered that because they had a lot of knowledge, mm -hmm. even if they didn't think they, some of them didn't think they did, but they, but they did. And so I wanted to really honor that. And so I hope people come away with it feeling like at least I was trying to be as respectful as possible towards people's opinions. Um, my opinions certainly have shifted through doing this work. Um, especially in relationship to CITES, which has become a lot more, and I should say this as someone that's not really impartial in the sense that, you know, I've been involved in CITES non-detriment finding work. Um, and so I, I do engage with the CITES community, um, but, it, you know, I'm, I, I, will, I can only imagine that there are going to be some conservationists and sort of, you know, capital C conservationists who aren't necessarily thrilled with some of the things that I, you know, talk about in the book maybe sure. necessarily um but you know it's a fraught and complex topic and i think it's it kind of getting into the weeds of it that maybe we can you know find something analytically interesting or that can be pr productive i think cites an extremely well-intended mm -hmm. convention 
Um, I don't know. Do we need to talk about? Maybe we should. Yeah, it talk might a actually be helpful because yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> let's dive in a little bit because I mean, again, like I've said, I've been in this for decades now, and you know, I've heard good pros and cons, and to make yeah. a one size fits all sort of strategy for the breadth of life. Yeah. Whew. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, let's let's go into it a little bit. I mean, at its basic level, right? Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora is the long name, mm. but right, this is a convention that uh, you know it was a long time coming, but um, gets going in mid 1970s and is the trade convention. It's a trade convention. That's something I often remind people of. It's not, I mean, it is about con uh, regulating trade. It's not a conservation convention per se. Um, it's about regulating what kinds of trade in wildlife and their derivative products is legal or not and why. Um, and so, um, you know, a good example of where this gets really fraught and muddy for people and say the cactus community is, um, you know, so all cactus species all around like 1500 or so species of cacti, depending on who you ask, are registered in, um, as CITES Appendix 2 plants. Mm. So Appendix 2 means you need at least an export permit um, from if you were going to trade it internationally. That's the other big thing that a lot of people don't understand. CITES is only an international trade right. convention. Right. So domestically, you know, it has no... Basically, it, it doesn't matter. Um, but then there's also Appendix 1, which means there's effectively no trade allowed other than exceptional circumstances, usually for scientific research. Mm -hmm. um, but then you've complicated things happen. So that's about cactus plants. That doesn't apply to succulents. Some succulents are on CITES. Some aren't. So it already gets complicated. Ooh, yeah. In 1997, Mexico upgraded site cactus seeds to CITES. Wow. So it got even more complicated. So suddenly to buy just Mexican cactus seeds, you know, internationally became something that was regulated and required trade permits. Um, and so you can imagine maybe for really passionate collectors, why this could become a controversial, um, a controversial topic. And, you know, for a lot of the people in the collector community, they really see CITES as a really well-intentioned um, convention, but one that has potentially done more harm than good. Mm. Now, I am not suggesting that's necessarily how I feel about it. Sure. Um, but 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 part of my project was try to take that perspective seriously and understand why people might feel that way. And I've approached that both within the book, but also within scientific articles that I've done along alongside this research, too. Right, right. And whenever I've heard critiques of it, it's never been someone with malicious intent, right? It's someone that actually does care a great deal and sees the flaws of it of... You know, a common argument I will hear is, well, you know, these these X, Y, Z companies can go in and destroy hundreds and thousands of acres of habitat and we can't take a few seeds out to save a species. I get that. Yeah. That's a pretty sound. Your head's in the right place. Now, what that approach looks like and how that that's where the nuance really starts to come in. So, I mean, that's the other part of this, too, is like going back to this black and white. No one. It, it never really feels malicious. And that's, I think, where it does start to make people. It's a little uncomfortable, but like you said, if we're diving into the weeds of it, you have to know these motivations because so many of these people don't think they're doing wrong. In fact, some of it almost feels like a heroic last-ditch attempt for a species. Yep, I've met plenty of people um, who, and I write about this in the book, I, I write about this kind of idea of the flawed, the flawed archetype of the Robin Hood conservationist, and, I'm, <laughs> I, and I use the idea of the Robin Hood conservationist to mean someone, this idea of the 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 well-meaning collector or you know hobbyist person who cares about um, cacti, who recognizes that there's a high demand for a particular species or plant, and in order to try to circumvent people going out and stealing plants en masse from habitat, um, you know, taking wild plants from where they they grow. They maybe go and take seeds or cuttings or a couple of plants to then propagate and try to like you know disperse them as much as possible. So like you know think of it as the Robin Hood conservationist <laughs> as an idea because that's how they see themselves as sort of you know um, giving like the material to like the sort of wider community even if it's illegal. Right. Um, now we can very quickly um, see why that maybe is also a flaw, a flawed kind of character, um, and these are the same people that might be made out within the con the sort of collector community as heroes, but are, um, you know, um, you know, uh, recognized as villains within sort of the conservation community, um, and so it gets it gets messy pretty quickly. Right. Um, but it, but it became a really fascinating. But they these these kinds of interlocutors for me were extremely important figures because. 
one of the things that a lot of people ask me was they're like, how did you study? How did you like study in illegal trade? How did you get so close to some of these people that they were willing to share so much, so much information with you? And, and in part, because it's not a heavily criminalized <laughs> space, right? right? Like right. at the end of the day, governments care more for obvious reasons about human trafficking and gun trafficking and drugs than they do about illegal trade in plants. Right. Um, and so because of that, it also meant that you have fewer kind of legitimately criminal actors operating in this space. Um, and, um, you know, these people felt like they wanted their story told. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people got frustrated with me because of my research ethics. Everyone in the book is anonymous, anonymous, like nobody, hmm. I couldn't name anybody right. in the book by their actual name. Um, that was a research informant or, a, you know, someone I interviewed and now that, that applied to both conservationists and botanists, yeah, yeah. but also, you know, people who take plants from Mexico. And a lot of them were pretty annoyed about that. They 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 wanted their they wanted to put their name behind hmm. what they were had they had to say. And um because it was dealing with issues of illicitness or illegality at times, it was really important from an ethical perspective that, you know, I protect their anonymity even if they didn't even <laughs> if they didn't want me to. Right. Which was an interesting dynamic. Yeah, that's fascinating. I never would have expected that. And that was actually part of uh, you know, my next question was just you know, what was the tone of some of these approaches, especially when you were very certain what was going on was illicit or illegal or, you know, downright detrimental? You know, was there ever any tension besides the the anonymity and the ethics side of it? Like that you as a researcher, like you're still a human, right? You're still interacting yeah. with another person. Sometimes that can go awry before you even realize it's happening. So, you know, how was that sort of, again, you're professional, so... Yeah, for what it's worth. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, aside from from one situation um, on Cedros Island or Isla de Cedros um, off the coast of Mexico, um, I was always I always managed to very successfully steer clear of any situation that I would describe as sort of like one in which I was legitimately concerned about anyone's risk or sure. safety. Um, again, you know, this wasn't trying to study narco trafficking, right. <laughs> um, which, you know, requires, you know, because there are people who study narco trafficking that requires a sort of different approach and orientation and thoughts about risk and safety as a researcher and for your, you know, your research participants. Um, but, you know, um, a lot of this was about trust building, um, you know, again, trained in social science research. Um, you know, I had, a, I remember a conservation scientist, a sort of more classically trained conservation scientist said to me, well, what if you see, you know, someone doing something illegal, like even like potentially taking seeds or, you know, ripping up a plant, like, you know, are you going to report them? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I said, you know, no, like I, you know, my, as a social scientist, my, I, 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 I have an obligation to protect my my research subjects mm -hmm. now that can that can leave you in in certain uncomfortable positions right you know so mm -hmm. um i i actively didn't try to ever be in a situation where i was say watching you know someone ripping plants out of habitat sure. um that wasn't something i also felt like i didn't really need to see firsthand what that looks like i could right. understand yeah. what that what that involves yeah um but i but i definitely was in moments of spaces of uh, where things were a little bit murkier right or mm -hmm. doing interviews where plants that were being sold at, you know, conventions or, you know, cactus shows were pretty definitely there illegally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so thinking about research ethics was important. Um, and in checking in with myself about, about that too, and trying to just be as self-reflexive as possible in, in how I write, write about that. Mm -hmm. Um, it was really, you know, it was a really interesting, uh, experience. I definitely think I learned a lot from the process. Um, but I also was grateful, right, that this wasn't a scenario where I was I was not having to worry too much about, you know, my own safety or the yeah. safety of others involved in the research, which is, you know, a, a much more challenging and complex kind of research. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it's not that people want to go looking for necessarily like juicy stories of you had to run right. away kind of thing. But it is, you know, for most of us that aren't in the social sciences engaging in this sort of work, it's it's nice to see or at least hear behind the scenes of like how do you accomplish this sort of stuff? And, you know, part of telling that story is getting the truth or as close to it as you possibly yeah. can. And if trust is violated, you don't get that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
Um, yeah, I'm, I'm lucky. I, my, my first degree was in anthropology, and I think that's always kind of, even though I'm a geographer, I think that's always influenced and informed my approach to thinking about a lot of this research. You know, a lot of that kind of work is a kind of deep hanging out, you know, um, <laughs> and that can feel confusing to some people, you know, trained in the more kind of traditional sciences as a methodology. But, yeah. you know, um, human subjectivity is complex and trying to understand that oftentimes people say one thing but are do another or mean another thing mm. is complex. But we all know that we're like that as, you know, fallible humans. <laughs> and so trying to be attentive to that um, in the research process and, you know, I hate to use the word triangulate data, but there is a level of that too, especially on the like questions of what is the truth, right? In this in this scenario, right? You have a scenario in which certain people are saying that they de- they did certain things or why they did certain things, but then you have another body of evidence that suggests another thing. Yeah. So oftentimes, rather than sort of only looking for one kind of truth, I was trying to understand when narratives nece- didn't necessarily align. What is maybe that? What is revealed being revealed in that moment of you know, contradiction or, or, um, um, a misalignment yeah. maybe. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. I really love to shadow you at some point. That would be so much fun. I think <laughs> just I enlightening experience for me as, as more of uh, you know, the other side of the sciences, but similarly, you know, part of this is discovery on your own, uh, on your side of things. And, and not only just to write the book, but I'm sure you went in with some notions or some ideas and, and, uh, Every time I go looking for information, I'm surprised. And so, you know, again, you're covering a wide range of plants, multiple different families, whether it's Cactaceae or uh, Crassulaceae, something like that, right? Did you end up, based on where you've been with your research and where you went with this book, did you find that like certain groups, genera or something like, what surprised you, I guess, is where I'm trying to go with this in terms Mm. of where the trade goes, how far it can go and how wild it can be? Um, hmm. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, so one of the methodologies I was trying to work with or employ on a very basic level, we could call follow the thing. This actually comes from a, <laughs> a, a body of work by a um, scholar named Ian Cook. Um, and and iterations of that around the idea of follow the species. And what this is really about is trying to pay attention to the actual material thing that is being impacted by mm. the trade itself. Um, and so for me, one of the tactics I took was trying to say, I'm going to try to follow some, identify from talking to collectors and stuff, what are certain species in this particular moment that are in high demand or that people are really talking about or that might be getting impacted by by trade um, or are threatened or endangered, that kind of thing, and try to literally figure out how to follow it in its sort of global circulations. So a lot of those are the, the, the chapters. So half, almost half the book, the second half of the book, I should tell people, ends up almost being about the story of both Dudleya farinosa and Dudleya pacophytum and mm-hmm. this emergent trade that starts in the U.S. and Mexico and kind of what binds these two different Dudleya species together and how they end up, a lot of them end up in South Korea, but then maybe also much further abroad than that and the, around the narratives that emerged around these trades. Um, that wasn't a trade that was on my radar at all when I began this research. I only came across it when I was at a IUCN red listing workshop in Querétaro, Mexico, and um, a, a researcher from San Diego was like, told me basically said, you know, there's this thing popping off in California. Have you heard about the Dudley poaching issue? And this was back in early, like January 2018. So mm-hmm. I just really started this work, and I hadn't heard about it. And I and I and it wasn't on my plan. I had been planning to go spend a bunch more time in Mexico, and. Mm-hmm. She really sort of insisted that I go check it out, and I ended up spending a little over a month in California, um, up and down the coast, interviewing conservation conservationists, botanists, law enforcement officers, getting kind of into court records, and left that work kind of dissatisfied. But what about what I about what I had learned about why suddenly there seemed to be this brand new huge trade in and poaching of Dudleya farinosa which is what we talked about, I think, when we talked in 2020. Um, And ultimately, that work led me to South Korea um, and then then beyond. And um, but yeah, that 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 story just kept unfurling in this way that even as I was finishing writing up the book, I discovered new things that were connecting these different trades and in particular actors and um, sort of without giving away the plot. 
that's all to say that you know that was originally supposed to be one chapter of the book and it turned into i think three um and and then that was just sort of the organic process part of the research um so i think a big thing that i learned in in the process of doing this work was being open to surprise and being really open to not trying to just sort of set a set out a plan and try to follow it through um but you know unambiguously like the same thing could have happened if i had spent if I had had been afforded the time or resources or, you know, research funding to spend a lot more time in South Africa. Yeah. Um, but I am hoping that, 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 that I'm going to be doing some future work there. Yeah. I mean, sadly that the, the, the work is not over with this book, right. And, and trying to understand that why again is as varied as the people involved, the players. And I, I love this idea of sort of follow the thing because one of the big threads of our last conversation and again, reiterated, so eloquently in this book is it's it's not the simple story that we're usually fed in the one page article and the pop science, you know, stolen from southwestern North America ends up in Asia done. Yeah. That's the problem. It's so bigger than that. It is global in its perspective. And, and we're doing people a disservice by simplifying it. But we're also, again, doing the conservation ethos a big disservice by just kind of making it simple. Yep. Um, but, you know, this is so common, right? And, yeah. Yeah. you know, I. I I don't mean to like criticize journalists because you know they're they have a they have a job to do and they have a story to get out right. and there's always some you know not always but there's often truth to something in that simple narrative it's just that if you really dig deep it becomes a lot more complex a lot more quickly and I think in particular rather than just trying to say well it's complicated it's messy it's a lot you know more complex than that is to ask ourselves you know what is it in these very simple narratives that really captures our attention and, and intuitively makes sense to us, right? So in the example of like, these plants are being stolen, they're going to Asia, well, obviously, right? Like that's underpinned by these, you know, really um, harmful narratives mm-hmm. um, that I think, um, you know, find a lot of hold in very long histories of of anti-Asian sentiment in the, in the United States and in Europe um, and anxieties about sort of um, power um, right. and who has power and who who does not and anxieties over losing power, and I saw that emergent in these trades. Now, some people might say, well, you, you know, um, that they don't, <laughs> but I, you know, I I think I try to do my best to demonstrate through evidence why what led me to thinking about you know how um, you know these like the Dudley Affair Nosa trade didn't just it wasn't just about South Koreans or it wasn't just about Chinese buyers, right? But it was about a global trade and. Um, and yet we only tend to kind of put focus on on certain geographies. And, 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 you know, part of that, I think, is the basic human impulse to want to blame the other. Right. Um, there are definitely, we know, people across the U.S. who are engaged in illegal trade in these plants, too. Um, and yet that story seems to hold less sex appeal Yeah. Um, than when it's this sort of villainized other, you know. Um, and... That's that's an issue that just requires constant attention and reflection, I think. Yeah, yeah, and good storytelling, right? And and that's the other really good point about all of this is the domestic style to this sort of stuff. You know, barring maybe California and Hawaii, I've never been stopped at the border of any state. And even if I have, it's definitely, they're not looking for plants. So mm-hmm. this idea, I mean, we've met well-intentioned people. We've met nefarious characters and, and you know, everyone in between that has... A story to tell uh, that relates to something of this ilk and so yeah i think kind of uncovering that and showing just how complex this world is gets to that why but thinking about it uh, from the end goal here right it's like you want to sell books right that's great but at the same oh, time i thought you were going to say i want to save plants no no that's where i'm going with this <laughs> you are going but it, you want to sell the book first but like at the end of the day like this is your lifeblood like this is your passion this is what you care about and and if anything coming away from this book you see just how much more passionate you've become for this subject matter and all of this is to give back to try to help and try to understand the situation and so when you think about your goals of the the wise and the the practical sort of recommendations that can come out of this. I mean, mm-hmm. where do you go from that? Because to me, uh, not in this world, it's hard to put all of those pieces together without someone spelling it out, right? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it is really wild when I think about it, when I step back. I mean, I did not study plant conservation before I started writing this book. <laughs> and it apparently, I guess this is, at least for the time being, this is what I do now. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, learning to care about these plants has profoundly changed me in the trajectory of my career. Um, and so I think one of the, the takeaways from this, from my book around this is not to 
try to scare people off from wanting to have meaningful relationships with these plants that for a variety of reasons grip many people's imaginations right and, right. and desires right like there's a reason that these succulents and cacti are over and over again in history extremely popular right, right? this isn't the first go around um and i don't think prohibition is the answer hmm. um, i think we know enough from the drug trade and other forms of illegal activity that are heavily criminalized that prohibition is a wildly ineffective <laughs> policy response yeah. okay um and there's good evidence there's good scientific evidence i'm not just saying that as someone who thinks this, this is something i think a lot about and some as a geographer who's been a lot of time now studying illicit geographies sure um, so I don't think prohibition is the answer. And so I do think that on a policy wonk level, there are some real questions to ask about what is the role of CITES in the 21st century? Um, this is a convention that was written before the internet um, <laughs> and, and, and frankly is structured to not be able to respond to that problem. And, right. and you know, um, it's an incredibly well-meaning um, convention that has done, you know, I think we can look to examples where it's done a lot of good, but um, it's not it's not a convention i would argue that it has is built for the 21st century in the rapidity of the global economy in a world interconnected via digital media yeah um it's just not yeah. up to the task doesn't mean it couldn't be but i would say currently it's not and it's causing that's causing some issues and we've seen there's some you know good literature on this um so i think that prohibition is not the answer i think that there are people with persistent desires to have plants i think that there are mechanisms and ways for that to be done sustainably. And I think the real challenge, though, is how do you approach that in a way that actually also honors and thinks about who has been exploited historically in these uneven relationships of global trade? Mm. Why is it that Dutch growers remain, you know, the sort of largest purveyors of a lot of these plants when they come from South America and Mexico, mm. right? These are really uneven histories of plants being stolen in an era where it was simply just not illegal yet right, right? right um so right. there is a there is a colonial and imperial history and residue that remains within these hobbies right there's a reason that people think a lot about empire and botany together right mm. um i don't think we need to be afraid about that i think we just need to be able to say yeah maybe maybe part of the solution needs to really focus on a pragmatic response where people who are living in places that have had resources taken from them for very long periods of time that have resources now that are valued by others um, that could be cultivated sustainably, ethically, with care, right? Mm -hmm. um, that that's something that requires intervention. So yeah, if there are people listening who have money, <laughs> you know, if there are foundations out there who are like, what can I do about this? I think one of the things we really as a, as a conservation community need to think about is how can we put our money behind um, efforts to actually think about approaching, responding to these trades through the framework of multi-species justice. Um, and I think there are really pragmatic ways of doing it. It is going to be complicated. It will require annoying, um, uh, 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 overcoming barriers of states and <laughs> uh, regulatory bodies that, that sort of don't have a, that have a lot of inertia not to, sure. to move. Um, but I think that's the work. It's I don't think it's necessarily the sexiest work, but I think that that's an important part of what I see as needing to happen. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to approach that as just a sort of Pollyanna-ish response. I don't think it is going to necessarily be easy. And as long as because of scales of trade, right? Like these plants can be cultivated en masse using tissue culture or whatever by you know companies that have that scale to do so. <laughs> right. Those are always going to be cheaper plants to buy on the global market than like if you wanted to start a like social development program in a rural village in Oaxaca to grow rare cacti. Right. But what do we value, right? Like think about the trajectory of the, um, you know, the fair trade movement or the organics movement and things like that. I mean, it just doesn't exist yet yeah. in the world of, of plants. Yeah. Um, so yeah, part of me, like, is that my answer is that's like a boring market oriented <laughs> response. Um, but but part of me but but then there's another flip side of it is I w I hope that if people read the book they will think a lot more about the history of their plants. Yeah, and and to that you've definitely succeeded, and that's I think one of my favorite bits is just how much this does connect you to these species. It's not just a story of trade or illicit activities. It it really does ground you in the plants themselves.
that's what in defense of plants is all about, right? But, you know, if you had a simple answer to that question, I would have worried, right? And that's the point is that the the, the things we need to be doing are, haven't been done because they are kind of hard or difficult or not sexy. And that often, unfortunately, is the mark of the work that does desperately need to get done. So and thank you. I should <laughs> add in saying all of that, it's not like other people haven't thought about this. Sure. And that also I'm the true. first person to think about this. <laughs> and I know a lot of amazing people, like especially within, say, like the botanical garden community that are actively thinking about this right. um, and actually really trying to get some projects off the ground to try to implement what would it mean to pilot, for instance, a program. Um, this is a huge issue right now in South Africa. You have some incredibly impoverished, extremely rural communities that are not well supported by the state. Um, and these are communities that have been turned into, um, that have deep, deep knowledge of their ecologies and environments. And um, suddenly we're seeing a lot of plants disappearing from these places because other people in other places in the world really want them. And these are people who have very few opportunities right. for economic development. And, you know, we're, we're, I'm talking about very, very at the basic levels of economic development, right? Yeah. And you know, um, people are people people are going to do what they need to do to feed their feed their families. Yeah, right? I mean, it's hardships um, most of us can't imagine. Yeah, right. And I think one of the problems is sometimes that conservation organizations try to do social development work when they're not trained to do it. Yeah, it is tough because again, the skill sets. I've spent my life working in conservation in a very specific niche of conservation and trying to understand plant communities i am not equipped to do much else honestly so you know that's i i'm case in point right and and that's i think part of the strength of our society today but also you know that we have to understand it as a weakness and work towards it together <laughs> i think one of the surprises i had i was just coming back to a question you asked earlier i yeah. think also one of the surprise and this is to also honor what you're doing on this podcast too um because I'm not a botanist. <laughs> and, um, you know, one of the things that really shook me and surprised me in, in researching this book was how basic botany, basic botanizing, basic science about plants, their distribution, where they are, mm -hmm. describing new species is not prioritized nope. within the scientific community at all no, anymore. There's no motivation and, scheme for it. <laughs> No, and yeah. it one tells us something about the sort of political economy of of knowledge production. Mm -hmm. um, that's not where the big money in scientific research is. That's not where the big money in grants for biologists are. And it tells us also, I think it points to why we need more deeper um, connections between, say, the hobbyist collector enthusiast community and the scientific community. I mean, think about eBird. Think about the birding right. community and how they've been leveraged as this enormous scientific resource. Yeah. And and yet unfortunately because of these issues around trade and illegality and that's not to suggest that those aren't real problems that there's a lot I would say there's not a whole lot of love lost right now between a lot of people in the conservation community and say the the the, the hobbyist um, cactus and succulent collector community but a lot of these are the people who pay to go out and look at where these plants are in the world mm -hmm. and and keep tabs on them in their own backyards and are aware of populations that aren't necessarily informal assessments because scientists don't have the money and time to go and do that kind of basic work and i hope that in the future that that can start to change that's some trust building work i think that kind sure. of needs to be fostered because you've got a lot of people out there who have amateur credentials but they know a lot about these plants right and um there's a lot there's there's fewer mechanisms in place for them to help kind of feed um knowledge generation big time yeah i was just watching a a little workshop thing on on naturalistic planting designs and just the information they were coming at from the horticultural perspective i was mm. like dang i wish i had that during my thesis you know what i mean so yeah i it, just because the jargon isn't there or the training isn't there doesn't mean there isn't value there and that's uh, yeah trust building is a big one but I mean, to go back to the original point, it's like the the amount of unknowns is so unfathomably large in botany. It's absurd. And when people ask, like, what should I study? I'm like, well, pick, because that slice of the pie chart of known things is got a hand lens because it's small, right? So I think there's a big sentiment there that I just want to resonate time and time again. And, and it, it, books like this really do help that because you do meet such a crowd of people. And like you yourself, you've picked up so much passion and knowledge in the process of doing it. And you know, I love the drawings in the book of like this cactus. It looks like <laughs> hair Ew. Yeah. versus like 
let's tone down the spines. Let's put a smile. Like just our perception of these organisms as organisms often can cloud it. So I, I, again, you have just, you've, you've taken a piece off of a very large piece of, of chaos and, and made something very sensible and approachable out of it. So kudos, man. Well, and kudos to my, my editor and press for letting ridiculous <laughs> ridiculous bad cactus drawings in my I book loved it. to try to make a point. <laughs> that was good. No, I think that, uh, that if that squeaked through, uh, good on you for pushing for it. So, I think one of the things that boggled my mind when I was interviewing botanists was the number of times someone would say, oh yeah, no, I have about four or five or six species that I've you know, described that haven't been published. I just haven't gotten around to publishing them yet. Right. Like I just don't have time. You know, right. I'm like, you know, in my mind, I was thinking like, if you're a botanist and you, you know, find a find a plant that hasn't been formally described yet in the literature, this would be like sort of, you know, yeah. the the pinnacle of your career <laughs> right. or something. And it's yeah. like they're like, no, just if you go spend out enough, you know, go spend enough time in a field, you'll you'll find one. And that is just uh, the amount of wonder I I left this project with. The amount of wonder I left this project with for the botanical world was. Um, really a treasure like really you know it has it did shape um my you know it has it has changed my orientation towards um the subject which is um yeah feel very grateful to have been able to get to do the work that's awesome music to my ears truly i mean again you're coming (laughs) in from a tiger background and now here you are right defending plants and trying to understand it and and help a global issue and so with that in mind people that are just chomping at the bit to pick up a copy of this book Mm -hmm. where do they go looking for it um, so it is available through the University of Minnesota Press website. It's called the Cactus Hunters, but you can buy it anywhere. You know, pick your pick your online retailer of choice. I don't know yet whether it'll show up in a bookstore near you, but if you call your local bookstore, it might. There you um, go. And Request. its official publication is in November, but it's already starting to it's it's already starting to ship for pre order. So Excellent. you can get it now. That's very exciting. Everyone needs to pick up a copy wherever they get their books. But uh, if people want to learn more about your work in general, where do you recommend they go looking for that? Um, I have a website, um, jaredmargulis.com, but also I have a new research group website. Excellent. It's um, ccgc.ua.edu, and that's for the Critical Conservation Geography Collective. Hell yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I love it. I will make sure those links get put in the show notes so cool. people don't have to remember that or pull over to write it down. Yeah. But Dr. Margulis, thank you so much for everything you've been doing, but also for taking time to talk with us. I mean, you've got a busy schedule, uh, but you've done an incredible work here, and I commend you for it. Oh, you're so welcome, and thank you so much. It's been fun talking to you about it. Awesome. Well, again, keep in touch. Uh, I'm sure in a couple of years, you'll have more to say and we'll revisit. Thanks. All right. Cheers. All right. Incredible stuff. Once again, the book is The Cactus Hunters, Desire and Extinction in the Illicit Succulent Trade. I can't recommend picking up a copy enough. It is a wonderful read, very digestible, but very, very informative. And you'll come away with a lot of nuanced thoughts and recommendations for how we can improve this situation for plants. I thank Dr. Margulis for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us and, of course, for writing this book. As always, all of the relevant links are in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Just head on over there after you're done listening and check it out. While you're over there, consider supporting the show. I couldn't be doing it without support, and there's a lot of cool ways to do that. You can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, stickers, or as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants. Speaking of patrons, I have a shout out to the latest producers on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Luke and Kristen. Both of them signed up over at Patreon at the producer credit level, so they're both getting the most out of those kickbacks and doing the most they can to help keep the show up and running. Thanks again, Kristen and Luke. And of course, thank you to all my patrons. I literally couldn't be doing this without them. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.